you've got to get yourself mentally ready. It takes time, you know, if, if there's no cup of tea, if there's no caffeine coming, you've just got to figure it out yourself. Hi everyone and welcome to yet another episode of 80% Mental. My name is Dr. Pete Olushaga and this is a podcast all about the psychology of sport and performance and in this series I'm still on a mission to try and unpack the mental aspects of as many different areas of performance as I can. Now I don't know about you lot listening but I am really really enjoying this series so far. We've stepped outside the sports arena already when we explored the psychology of dance with first soloist for the Birmingham Royal Ballet, Kit Holder, an expert in the psychology of dance, Dr. Sana Norden-Bates. And I'm going to do the same thing, or at least a similar thing again in this episode, as I explore the psychology of stage and screen. And I'm honestly so, so excited to introduce my guest for this episode. It's been a long time in the works, but we're finally here. And it's my absolute pleasure to introduce, first of all, uh, Dr. Shobna Gulati. Uh, Shobna, for those of you who uh, don't know, is an English actor who, uh, can, can I say national treasure? Yeah, you can if you'd like. I'd like, well, that's gorgeous, yes. <laughs> well, I, I think that's fair. I think you've, I think uh, Shobna's a national treasure, um, probably best known for her role as uh, Sunita in Coronation Street, uh, but also starred in the chronically underappreciated sitcom Dinner Ladies uh, alongside Victoria Wood. Uh, I think it's fair to, to say a veteran of stage and screen. I'm, I'm delighted that you agreed to come on the podcast. I think veteran, yeah, it's so funny when I think about it. It's now 35 years since I've done this as my chosen profession. It's a long time, isn't it? <laughs> it certainly is, yeah. And and, and Dr. Galati, because you, you received an honorary doctorate, is that right? Yes, I've actually, the funniest thing is, yeah, I uh, when anybody introduces me is that, I have to sort of um, say, yeah, I'm a doctor of the arts. And I'm also a doctor of medicine. I have three doctorates, actually. Two okay. in the arts and one of letters. Um, yes, so that's um, Hallam University, Sheffield, uh, Huddersfield University, and Bolton University. I didn't. I didn't realize you had one from Sheffield Hallam. That's where I am. Are you? Are you? Yeah. Well, um, I mean that that they were granted when I took a role in Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. So it happened with Jodie Whittaker being Doctor. Yeah. Doctor Who, and then everybody in in the cast at that moment in time got a doctorate. Oh, it's very, awesome. it was a bit strange, but very, <laughs> very, very, very beautiful honor. Well, welcome to eighty percent mental. I'm I'm really glad that you could be here. Thank you. Uh, and also joining me on the podcast today is Dr. David Todd, lecturer of sports psychology at Lancaster University Medical School and an accredited sports psychologist with 30 years worth of experience. And the reason that we've got David here today is because as well as working with athletes, he's also worked with dancers, musicians and actors. So I'm really excited to get his perspective today. David, welcome to 80% Mental. Thank you, Peter. I'm really delighted uh, you invited me and I, I'm really happy to come along and be part of the conversation. No, well, thank you for taking the time because I know that you're, uh, as I am, busy preparing for another semester. Uh, how's that going? Uh, it's, it's going pretty well. I've just moved to Lancaster and uh, got a good group of people, so it's going pretty well. But it's really nice to have this opportunity to take a break and talk about things that uh, I'm really passionate about. So thanks for that, Peter. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks for, again for uh, for joining us, and I guess we'll we'll, we'll dive, dive straight in. Um, 
So Shobna, we've we've touched on this a little bit already, but you've had a pretty impressive career to date. You start in Coronation Street, which is basically a British institution. Uh, and I, I, I read this morning, 674 episodes. So I don't even know. I, I actually started in Dinner Ladies as a uh, on the television and then Coronation yeah. Street came afterward. Yeah, I, I don't really think about Coronation Street a lot these days, but <laughs> a lot of episodes that when you when you sort of read that back to me, yeah, I, it's interesting because, you know, walking around town now, you come across a lot of people who who remember you as Sunita and it mm. always shocks me. I just I just think, well no, I left about ten years ago now and Yeah. Six hundred and odd times in people's lives is quite a lot, isn't it, into their living room? Sure, yeah. And I, I want to sort of talk about that a little bit later on, Neil, the idea that people recognize you for a character that you play. People sort of think that maybe they know you um because you've you've been broadcast into the television for for, for that many that many episodes but we'll maybe talk about that a little bit later but as as we mentioned we've already um talked about the fact that you were in doctor who Uh, i just found out that you were also in midsummer murders which my american friend leah is obsessed with so she's going to be really pleased that you've come on the podcast to talk to me um that hasn't been broadcast yet oh is it not in england but it has been on uh, american television because i've had a few tweets about it oh wow Oh, okay. Um, I'll t- I can neither confirm or deny that <laughs> I'm either a victim or a murderer. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, you, you've been on, on Loose Women. Again, for our American listeners, that's the same as The View, I think it is in America. Yes. Um, but what's in that sort of varied career, what's the most fun thing that you've done? I think one of the most fun things I do, it's radio, actually. I really enjoy radio because you can be whoever you like Mm. I've actually you know I've played the queen Margaret Thatcher uh, Virgin Mary you know it's kind of like you can be anybody and it doesn't have to it's nothing to do with how you how you look and I think that's really freeing or it Mm. has been very freeing because uh, you know for for very many years I've been put into a kind of uh, performance box as you know having my cultural heritage being called British Asian or an actor of South Asian heritage or a woman of colour and all of those things can suddenly just fly out of the window and what can happen is you're just your technique and your voice is you know the key to everything you know the key to telling a good story and nobody can say anything you know and there you are you're free in that moment and I love radio on on account of that. So having that ability to play all those kind of people, I I really, really enjoy. You know, nobody then has a view or judgment on me. And uh, it's great. It's great. You can just be a voice and tell a story. Can you... um... Can you remember the first time that you sort of performed, that you got up on stage? I mean, I guess, when when did you realise that it it was something for you? Well... I danced. I, I, I trained as a dancer. I trained as an Indian classical dancer. I studied Parathanatyam. Um, uh, my sisters were performers, actually, to be honest, and I was a very quiet, quiet child. And um, I, you know, I had some sort of deep psychological problems, according to my parents. <laughs> <laughs> and they had to sort of bring me out of my shell a little bit. And my, as I said, my sisters performed in this band that did Bollywood and Hollywood. 
and Bollywood and not Bollywood and Hollywood, Bollywood and ABBA, sorry. Mm. Uh, Beatles, Bollywood and ABBA, they sang, and they were very out there. And my father was a very out there kind of man. Um, and my mother was very keen on the arts too. So, you know, I was brought up in a very sort of musical and, uh, you know, accommodating household to do with the arts. Um, so it's kind of, you know, it was encouraged. And because I was shy, um, they thought that it would bring me out of my shell. And in a sense that it, it did, because when I danced, I was a completely different person. Yeah. Um, and I enjoyed, you know, the characterizations in South Indian classical dance um, because you could be both man. And you see, there's a theme here with me. You could be both man or woman or wherever you, you lay on that on that spectrum. So, and again, it was kind of like a place to be in a place to hide, but yet to show without it being me, if that made any sense. Yeah. It's any sense. So I... I really sort of came into my own at that point, but then would retreat after I was on stage. I would retreat back into my um, into my little room and, and just shut the door. It's always been that way. It's still that way. I mean, hence the camera is off as well. It's, it's helpful to me that that is happening right mm-hmm. now because I'm not really a person. I have to really sort of get myself into that performance performance mode and that's why it's so interesting to be on this podcast because I'd like to talk about how I get how I get there and and I think lots of people who perform um in you know high pressure situations you know it will resonate with them but it's quite odd when you say it to somebody that you're shy they don't quite believe it but I I am terribly terribly shy and it's 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 quite a it's quite a feat to get me on stage, and it still is, you know, after all these years. And what w- what do you make of that, David? Because you know, obviously, the the podcast's about the psychology of various types of performance, and you know, as somebody who has never acted, uh, and as somebody who actively avoids being in front of camera like i'm really interested in exploring some of those those mental aspects of the profession it, you know picking up on what shobna was talking about there is is there is there something different about the people you've worked with people who sort of light up when there's a camera nearby or or are you know from, from listening to shobna there she's sort of quite introverted it sounds like and the 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 the, the acting and the performing is, is just that it's just a performance so i, I wonder what you make of, of, of some of what we've just heard Thanks, Peter. You know, I, I I wish I was a listener listening to this at the moment. I've I've really enjoyed listening to what Shobna's saying because there's been lots of things she's been saying that that have, lights are going off in my head. And one of them has been around, you know, she used the term performance mode and getting herself into a frame of mind where she feels ready and focused and comfortable and performing. And I think based on, you know, I've worked with a number of dancers, actors, musicians, as well as sports people. And one of the things I picked up very quickly was that they're normal people. They're just as diverse and they're made up in, in many of the same ways as as you know the normal population. And I think sometimes you can have stereotypes of what a performer should be like and this idea that they should be outgoing and they should be confident and they should be, you know, this sort of rah-rah person. But, you know, 
they're people like everybody else and they have the same emotions and fears and worries and dreams and hopes and but what they also have is the ability to 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 move through that and get into the performance mode get into the the state of mind that, that they need to be so i'm looking really forward Shobna, to, to hearing you talk a lot more about how you do that and how you get into that mode because i think that's really interesting i think there's some I, I was thinking about this quite a lot and i think there is a sort of two things that operate on a on a performer is like you've got the pressures from the outside you know the people that you're working with the expectations of the audience the uh, expectations of your producer your director the writer all of those things um, and the critics, what the critics will say, these are sort of outside pressures that um, work on you. And then that feeds the anxiety that lives within you. And I think performance mode is about negotiating these two things. So, you know, I have various, I, have ver- I do various things in order to sort of combat the feed. Because <laughs> you know those outside pressures exist. And it, as I said, it's just about how that then works within you and your own personal anxiety. So I do, I do on occasions use rescue remedy, uh, which is sort of, sort of it sort of will will sort of calm an upper breath that I have. But then I have um, I have various routines now that I've set in place over the years. I do encourage warm ups in groups. There's a lot of theatre that has individual warm-up and there's a lot of theatre that has group warm-up and I always find that in group warm-up the show will always be 10 times better because you see everybody you already made contact with everyone it's it's about being in a in a in a team where you see each other and because you're looking at each other and you're warming up with each other you're working towards a common goal um I found in other situations where that's not present it's it can be a quite a shaky stage because you haven't seen the people that you're about to go on on stage with in a in a more tangible way you know the physical the physicality of warm up and the breath and the you can hear people you can sort of sense people you know it's very different when actors don't warm up together because i believe i mean i believe in my heart of hearts that working on stage is not just about the individual it's about that team trust so all you've got to sort of sort of feel that everybody's on that page with you and and you know how you build that during a show and then how you build that over time if you're repeating a show if you know if you're doing a a long run or you're on tour and it's how how to develop that and you know what your responsibility is that in, in the group we have a thing called the half in uh, in performance where it's half an hour before the before you before the beginners call, which is uh, you know the people who start the play, or if you're starting the play, it's kind of like a safe space where nobody really should enter your room unless they're invited to come into your room. You know, unless you've got you know wigs or makeup or things like that. But it's a kind of little preparation time, and I really observe it. I try not to use my phone or you know, distract myself from what's about to happen. Even though I might have done this play over and over again, it's still a very sort of sacred space for me to sort of mentally get myself into the into it. So I use a lot of up-talking. So I, I talk up myself. Um, mm-hmm. 
I use the mirror in my um, dressing room. I write things on the mirror. Um, one of the favourite things that I do write on, on my mirror is that I am enough. Um, you know, because of the outside pressures, you can often get carried away with that stuff. You can often, you know, you've got reviews, you've got immediate Twitter, you've got mm. immediate reaction on you know, social media nowadays, you know, you can go on stage and somebody can tell you that you were good or bad immediately. Yeah. So you try and block it all out and, and know that you have prepared and you're in that state and of of readiness without anybody, without any outside influences. I can't give myself any more than there already is, you see. Yeah. So I use that time very, very wisely. I talk about shows being meditative as well. It's kind of like practice. I see it as practice, like a, like a almost like a yoga practice or a meditation practice, where you take yourself out, out of real life and go into the reality of the show that you're doing, just for that moment in time. I don't take it home with me after either. I try not to. So it's just that moment in time. It's it's a very straight, but it has worked for me. This this has worked for me. I can turn off everything else, do it, and then come away and live the life of that character on stage without living having to live my life at the same time. And I think there's an often a confusion with performers, as I, you know, I've experienced, is that sometimes they bring so much of themselves to the stage that it all gets confused, and it can it it can cause it can cause issues on stage and it can you know it can be detrimental to a show because I think you have to put your I don't know you have to put something else on hold in order to be someone else I want to I, I definitely want to come back to that in, in a moment because it's really fascinating stuff but you know David you're, you're sitting here listening to all of this and as a psychologist there's so much there to unpack in the the skills that, that Shobhan is talking about and the, the way that she's preparing for, for performance and then actually executing the performance what what are you making of all of this I, I'm I'm really enjoying it I mean a lot of the things that Shobhan is saying is is exactly the type of techniques that I would use as any performer I really like the example Shobhan of writing things on the mirror and I am enough and and you call it up talking and, and and when I use it with clients I call it self-talk and you've mentioned so many things that parallel one of the things I thought Shobna that you said that was really hit home that I try to help clients with was when you talked about you've worked it out for yourself it's individual your preparation is suited to who you are and your personality and the situation you're in and that's one of the key drivers of good psychology as a, as a practitioner is helping the, the client, helping the athlete, the performer understand what's going to work for them and what suits them. And, and the other reason why I really like some of the techniques that Shobna was talking about was that they were organic. They weren't me as a practitioner saying, you should do this or you should do that. But it, it's much more when I work with performers that it's a conversation here are some ideas i've had here are some successes i've had with other performers but they may not work for you shall we talk about how you might adjust them whether you accept them don't use them or, or what, what are some of the things you're already using that help you in other situations so i think there's some really nice things coming coming up here that just i'm sitting here thinking 
you know, some lovely examples. mentioned at the end there Shobna about uh, um, kind of inhabiting roles and uh, you know I, I wonder how, how much of yourself how much of yourself do you give to being somebody else because you said that you know it, that can go a little bit too far sometimes to the detriment of the performance you know I, I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, one of the things that really struck home with me was a director once said you know, we've got to see that character live their life on stage. So I thought about that quite a lot. It's my, my son's here. Uh, he's just he's just actually making his breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the microwave. So providing uh, some nice uh, some nice background. Background noise. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's kind of like it's yeah living a life on stage. So I really really thought about that, and I thought, well, what does that mean? Of course. You, of course, you've got to use elements of yourself to become something else, and you've got to use your experience and your knowledge about people uh, and yourself and the people, you know, and your observation of others to create characters, you know, to make them. But I feel like um, I feel, I'm quite a technical. I have a quite a technical approach. That like recently, I played Mari Hoff in the Rise and Fall of Little Boys. She's a narcissistic mom who's a drunk and, uh, you know, she's trying to she's trying to find who she is within the world that she operates. And, you know, it was it's hard because I'm I'm not really I'm not really a drinker. I don't get drink to get drunk, you know, and to show somebody progressively lose themselves into drink was quite it was quite hard to do. Mm. But yet, you know, it it didn't make me want to go and drink or want to go and try and find out what that was. And then to understand narcissism and to look at the psychology of that and what that means and how that is, you know, playing somebody like that was completely, you know, opposite to how I am. Mm. But you see, the keys to all of her were in the words. So, that's what um you know gave me the structure and the bones of where to you know how to make her it was in the it was in the writing and and it was in the preparation of that I spent a lot of time with those words not just learning them because it's not about learning them necessarily but sort of understanding why the writer is writing that at that particular moment Mm -hmm. and that's how I made her and uh, you know, it was, it was, it was. Even the writer said he said it's the first time Jim Cartwright said I've seen a Mari Hoff give up to Mari Hoff. I mean, that was praise in itself, and that's something that I will take with me now to, you know, any other job that I, I take on. And you know, I was able to leave her behind. I didn't then go onto the pub and drink myself into a frenzy. No. <laughs> I just, you know, went home, ate some food, put some plans in place, you mm. know, to because if you're on tour for 17 weeks, you've got to do that over and over again, sometimes six, seven, eight, nine times a week. It's quite hard. It mm. is, you know, it's sort of so I put other structures in place to keep me grounded, like when am I going to eat? What am I going to eat? 
when do I go to the shops? What am I, what's my accommodation like? What can I do to look after myself in this process? And then I don't lose myself in her. Because it is easy to do that. It is, and you can. Yeah. You've just got to learn what, what is best for you, learn how to look after yourself. And that's not always an easy thing as a performer. You know, the, the papers are filled with all of us having terrible times. Terrible love affairs, everything going crazy, um, you know, for us, drugs, drink, alcohol, dependency, substance abuse. I mean, it's it's there. It's, it's prevalent in our profession, in these high-performance professions. David, go ahead. You were going to say something, I think. Yeah, I, I was just thinking, Shobner, what you're saying, it just reflects so much with so many uh, of the performers I work with. And, and, and that issue there of, of the business of performing as opposed to performing it itself and you know when i work with younger younger performers those that are going into training or coming out of training and then trying to make it sometimes i find with them they they have a real uh, it takes a bit of maturity and understanding to realize that what they love doing what they're passionate about whether it's acting or dance or playing an instrument and then learning what does that mean when i'm now going to make that my business when i'm now going to make that my living and a couple of things that you've talked about that that I sort of have recognized in my own clients is, is firstly well-being and looking after yourself and knowing how to, to look after yourself and how to self-care but also the, the, the other one and you mentioned it right at the start was the external factors that come in and one of the one of the really nice stories I, I liked listening to you this morning was when you were talking about why you liked radio because it freed you from you know the typecasting or it freed you from the stereotypes of what other people thought you should or shouldn't be and sometimes i find with particularly with people making that transition out of training to their trying to make a living out of it and sometimes some of that stuff takes some time to get used to so i'm really interested to hear about some of your learning experiences about you know how you, you reach that point the journey is not it's 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 not an it's not an easy one. And given my cultural background and my sort of entry into performance art, it was it was difficult. And I suppose those that pathway um, gave me a certain amount of resilience. Um, you asked me about the first time I I went on stage, and it was you know I was a quiet performer, so I didn't do it was community. It was within the community, sort of within the South Asian community, we had a lot of community shows. So it was my auntie who said, you know, can you come and sit on the stage here while this person moves around you? You can be the point on the stage that, and then she can move around you. And she said something like, this will be the only time you'll ever be on stage. Um, wow. I just thought that that was really interesting from my auntie. She's not my blood auntie, but, you know, everybody's an auntie. <laughs> so um, she sort of said that. And I thought to myself, well, but auntie, in my head, I thought, well, I dance. So maybe one day I'll be the person who dances around this person on stage. <laughs> so it was one of those things. It was the, one of those light bulb moments where somebody says you can't do something or you won't do something. And then you think, well, I will. But then, you know, you do dance and sometimes you don't do it so well or you haven't done it so well. Then you learn 
that, okay, I needed to practice this more in order for this to happen. So then you learn about preparation. And it's just small things, you know. I know when I go into an audition now, even at 56, if I'm not prepared, I'm not going to get the job. And then, you know, I blame myself and everything else. <laughs> and every other factor on the fact that I haven't prepared, you know. It's just kind of like, you know, when will I learn? But I I know when I'm I'm ready. You know, these, you know, learning about practice, learning about preparation. I mean, it's often unexpected for actors as well. Sometimes you can walk into a room and there's one person sitting opposite you. Sometimes there's nine people. Sometimes there's no women. Sometimes they're, well, more often than not, there's no people of colour. So mm. it's kind of like you don't know what that situation is going to be, but you know who you are and how you can be. So that's the only thing I can control. The only autonomy I have is over myself. So that takes time. I think that's just an age thing, isn't it? You know, you learn that as you grow older. You learn how to be reactive or non-reactive. It's just how you deal with the psychology of yourself. Uh, but you don't know that, that that's you for a long time. You think it's all the other things, but actually it's how you react. So I'm here with Shobna Gulati and Dr. David Todd, and we're talking about the psychology of stage and screen, the psychology of acting. And we're half an hour or so in, and it's a really fantastic conversation already. Um, Shobna, you were just talking there about the, the environment, and we've touched on that a little bit already. Now, in sport, we talk a lot about high-performance environments, the idea that uh, sport's really demanding for performers, constantly under scrutiny, there's pressure, there's rejection, there's failure. And, and these are all things that you've just mentioned as well in, in, in your uh, acting career. Um, I, I'd like to come to, to David here as well um, and, and just ask about some of the challenges of this environment. Um, in the work that you've done with actors, David, uh, what are some of the challenges that, that regularly come up? Um, and perhaps talk us through some of the work that you might do to help prepare uh, performers for this sort of environment. Sure, Peter. You know, when I was reflecting on the questions you sent through, the, the, the very first one that popped into my head was uh, anxiety. And and right across the board, actors and, and all other performers that I've worked with, anxiety has often come up and people having difficulty with um, controlling their nerves, controlling their thoughts, controlling their bodies. And so we spent a lot of time doing with that and I, I just want to throw in that another aspect to that 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 I see a lot is around appearance and body image mm. and often the two I've found with performers I've worked with it goes together because how they look and and what they look like and their whole background uh, has a big impact on on the work that they're able to to get and that's really tough that is really tough like Shobner was saying before the break it, you know when you don't get a piece when you don't get offered a job and, and you don't know why that is or you suspect it's because you know your hair or your nose or, or whatever that that's really personal you know that, that and it's not surprising that people I work with they come away th- taking it personally 
and feeling like, you know, is it, am I a bad person? Am I a wrong person? I think part of that, Peter, comes up is the, the people I've worked with, they quite often equate personal worth with their ability to achieve. And Shobner was talking early on about, you know, the, the, sometimes it takes maturity or experience to be able to to grapple with those two things. So, but the, you've talked also then about, you know, some of the work that I, some of the techniques and the way I go about that. When I have the time, what I like to do is get to know the person as, as much as I can, as I can get to know them as a person, get to know their environment. Because I think, you know, it's it's not just performance industries. I think society generally is it can be really toxic. Mm. And, and really harmful to our well-being, um, but it's trying to trying to understand that. And the, one of the things that came up that, that I thought about when I was going through your question was uh, a guitarist I worked with, um, and she was a she was a teenage guitarist. She wanted to to be big. She wanted to be the next big Taylor Swift um, <laughs> performer. That was her thing. Yeah. But every time she got into a performance situation or she got into an exam situation, she, she really struggled and didn't didn't produce. She was great in training, but when it counted, it was difficult. And the way I worked with her was in getting to know her, we spent a lot of time looking at the way she trained, looking at the way she practiced. And she made a really classic mistake that musicians make is, is when they make a mistake, they'll stop go back to the start and start again. So they go into a performance or an exam and, and the first part of their recital will be brilliant, fantastic. But when they get halfway through and towards the end, it starts to drop out because they just haven't practiced it enough. Mm. And and so it was trying to help this person at, at two levels. One was restructuring her practice, the way she used and her relationship with her instrument. But the second one was also looking at the way she thought and the way she looked about herself. And she made that mistake of, um, you know, some of the thoughts that were going through her head was, I have to make it. This is, this is you know, really important. My parents have poured so much money into lessons and getting me on courses and buying nice instruments. I've got to make it. So she's equating her self-worth with her achievement. She's equating parental love with achievement. So it's about part of it, in addition to the training, was helping her to to see things in a new light, to to understand that some of the thoughts that she had about herself weren't the only way she had to think. And uh, so there was quite a bit of sort of cognitive cognitive behavioral therapy, so restructuring the way she was thinking, lots of imagery, getting her to see herself in different ways. And, and it was also about getting advice from other people and, and having conversations with her teacher, having conversations with other people so that they she could test her ideas and, and realise that perhaps they weren't quite as accurate as they had been. So it was trying to help her from all those different levels. So, you know, and then working with other performers, the same principles. You know, Shobna you've talked about the importance of preparation. And when I work with performers, that's a, that's a big part. And it's not just the preparation in that last half hour, but it's also the preparation away from the performance domain that we want to look at. Because, you know, if we haven't, if we haven't trained ourselves, then we're on the back foot to begin with. So those are, there's one story of some of the ways I go about. So I hope that sort of 
giving you some insight into people as to how I go about working with people. Uh, absolutely, yeah. And one of my sort of questions was going to be, do you see lots of differences between uh, this type of performance and sports performance? But some of the things that you're saying are, are very, very similar in terms of um, practicing well, but then when it comes to performance, there's a, a bit of a fall off there um, and some of the kind of preparation that you might you might do. to So it seems like there's quite a lot of overlap. Yeah, there is quite a bit of overlap. Um, I think because, you know, if you think about, um, well, if I start sort of at the cultural level, the broader level, you know, people don't want to spend money and buy tickets to go see second-rate performers. Mm. So, you know, you, you can see how it can be quite toxic. You can see how fans and today with social media, how quickly people can, can make comment, pass judgment on each other. We talked earlier today about the business of performing and the financial realities that, you know, you can call yourself an actor or a dancer, but if, if you're not generating an income, it, it, it's, it's tough. It really is tough. Um, so there's a lot of those similarities. Shobna, earlier today, you talked about being part of a team and being able to get along with your other team members and, and acting. Uh, I've seen people talk about the interactions they have with their directors, with their producers, with their agents. And, you know, I spend quite a bit of time helping them, you know, negotiate communication skills. Yeah, and being I... able to build that, yeah. Absolutely. I think that, that that is key. I think that is absolutely key because I often say, you know, people talk about talent or the, the show or the end product, but it's it's mostly about negotiation. It is about how you communicate your ideas. And then on top of that, I think with all the pressures of social media and everybody's got an opinion and then we're living in this very divisive society right now, it's it is really hard, you know, throwing a bunch of people together. You know, we're not all going to be on the same page, even though we're all actors. We don't all think the same way. It's quite complicated that. And, you know, there's a lot of prejudice that can come into play mm. in in situations, a lot of toxicity, misogyny, racism, all of that. And it's how to do that. You know, I'm still learning how to negotiate those kind of um, things that can come into play and and to find the best way of doing that. And, you know, I'm not always successful. And, you know, uh, this last job I was on, I was with my son, uh, which was wonderful, actually. But even that was quite an interesting journey, you know, as mother and son in real life and then as equals in the rehearsal room and in the you know, and on stage, yeah, where mother and son doesn't come into it, letting go of that that relationship in the rehearsal room was was very freeing, but also very difficult. You know, because I've been his mom longer than he's been an actor. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's interesting. It's so so. It's fascinating, but because we're dealing with stories and people. And the telling of stories, you know, actors, I come back to what both of you said. It's kind of, you know, how much of yourself is there? Well, all of yourself is there, but it's how you use that, how you use what you have to to make something happen. 
and you know what relationship you have with yourself and what relationship you have with the anxiety that lives within you. I mean, I mean you've heard this, oh, you, David, and, and you will have heard this over and over, the, the anxiety dream about not being able to find the stage. You know, and you're trying to get on stage, you're trying to, and this is the dream, you're trying to get on stage and you can't find the stage or, you know, nobody's helping you. I mean, it's a, it's, it's, it's a massive dream that I still have. But it, it kind of manifests itself in different ways. Sometimes I have people in my dream saying, not helping me. And sometimes they go, it's this way, but they're pointing you in the wrong direction. And then you, you say, but you've got, you've got the script. Can I look at the words? And they go, no. <laughs> this is in the dream. It's kind of, it's, it's incredible, you yeah. know, how the mind works. I was going to ask you actually about some of those differences between you know, being on camera and being on stage in terms of maybe your mental preparation or just the environment itself. Um, can you talk to us about that a little bit? I think, yeah, I think the interesting thing is we have this um, this line, hurry up and wait, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, you get on set at five, you know, you wake up at four o'clock in the morning, you get in a car that takes you to set by the time you reach set it's about six o'clock because you're working against traffic and everything else mm. you get there you have a runner who says would you like a cup of tea the cup of tea sometimes never arrives <laughs> sitting there going oh no what's happening um you know what time and you've given a schedule but the schedule might not happen because of what happened the day before or you know, it's, as I said, it's negotiation again. And so you negotiate your breakfast, you negotiate the costume that might be ill-fitting or not what you planned with the costume designer. Oh, and then you sit in the makeup chair and somebody's off or, you know, or somebody hasn't really been prepped in terms of you being a woman of colour, you know, and that's interesting. You know, it's all about negotiation. It's, you know, and then you think, oh, right, okay. Yeah, so where's my performance in all this that's going on? So these are the external pressures again. And then the anxiety of working with somebody so famous that you think, oh, my goodness, I'm going to work with this person and, and I don't know whether I can, and what will they think? But you know what? Every actor sitting in that makeup truck is thinking exactly the same thing. You know, will I be able to do this? Can I do this today? Um, so that brings a little bit of comfort. Mm -hmm. But then I met an actor once who brought his guitar to set. And in a hurry up and wait, he taught himself to play the guitar because that was one of his methods. And I thought, that's interesting. What could be my method? So I do uh, like Duolingo. I'll sit and okay. pick a language you know, there's only so many times you can go over your words until you go, I'm prepared enough or, you know, you drive yourself into a state of, I don't know them now, but you, of course you've done it because you've done your preparation mm -hmm. before the days arrive. You haven't done it the night before. You've done it for ages while you've been sitting with the script and making your decisions. Now see on television and on film, the director is there but he's thinking or she's thinking or they're thinking about so many 
different things. And not just your performance. Sometimes they don't even tell you what they want. And you don't know whether you're doing the right thing. And then somebody will say, well, they'll, that if they wanted something else, they would have said so. And you go, oh, oh, okay. It's very different from theatre where it's a bit more hands-on. Mm-hmm. So you just kind of left to your own devices quite a lot. A few things that you that you mentioned there that, that I wanted to pick up on, and uh, in terms of your preparation, again, um, it's you, key. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you talked about this idea, um, and David, I don't know if you do any of this work with with people you that, that you work with. Um, there's an element of self compassion in there when you talked about the idea that okay, well, actually, everybody, every actor is feeling the same pressure, the same anxiety. It's this idea of common humanity, right? Um, yes. As a as a way of perhaps dealing with some of that some of that anxiety you talked about uh distraction using dueling what languages are you learning by the way is that of interest every language that i can possibly because i trained as a linguist so i just go back to um the alongside being a dancer and an actor obviously Mm. uh, obviously or i'm a south asian heritage girl you know i needed to have a a side hustle so (laughs) (laughs) was languages Uh, Sometimes I go back to, because after 30 years of not practicing them, I want to look at them again. So I look at um, um, Arabic. I studied Arabic, so I mm-hmm. look at that. I look at Hindi, um, being as that's not my mother tongue, is Punjabi, but mm-hmm. uh, Hindi was spoken in the household more. So I kind of do that. Yeah. Or, okay. um, or I go to Italian because I like the sound of that. <laughs> so it's kind Very of... Nice. Yeah, so I just kind of just mess around and, well, not mess around, but just a bit of distraction technique to just sort of uh, keep my brain going as well. You know, word games and things like that do keep you alert and wake your mind up Mm -hmm. when you wake up so early in the morning. You know, you've got to get yourself into some kind of, you know, not just physically warm, but mentally ready And, and, you know, it takes time, you know. If, if there's no cup of tea, if there's no caffeine coming, you've just got to figure it out yourself. <laughs> you you learn about yourself, don't you? Mm. You know, if you have to cry in a scene, often I don't eat and I don't have caffeine because I know I can access tears better if I am hangry and fed up. You know, you you learn things about yourself. You know, so it's it's about knowing what your your journey, your boundaries, how you do it. You know, how you access things. You know, what what makes it. But this is maturity, as as David quite rightly points out. You don't know these things. Nobody teaches you that. You learn about yourself on the way. Um, but yeah, and you have to be able to prepare to understand that you will fail. So, so David, is that? you know from your perspective is is that true is that something that only comes with maturity and experience or you know are there ways to maybe expedite that process of of learning i think there is i think a key thing that 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 we're talking about here is self-awareness and understanding who you are and your own strengths and limitations but also understanding why you are the way you are and why is it 
you react in, in certain ways. I, I think of a client I had a few years ago who uh, was very had real issues with with body image and, and how he looked. And you know, when we got got talking with him, you know, it, it turned out that when he was a, a teenager, his mother burst into the shower and took a photograph of him while he was in the shower. Well, and then said, "I'm going to show this to the first girl you bring home." I'm not surprised, two things. Firstly, that he was really quite self-conscious about his body, but also he never took a girl home. I mean, why would he? And, you know, as we, we explored this chap's story more, we found, you know, another incident that came up was when he was in, in the beach one day swimming and his mother took his togs off while he was in the water and ran away. So he, he's sitting there, he doesn't want to get out of the water. And, and but having an understanding of you know this chap always was just I'm ashamed of my body. It's a horrible body. But once we were able to unpack and realise, well, this is this is what's happened to you. He'd never made the connection between these childhood incidences and how he felt about himself now. Yeah. So it wasn't just understanding. Yeah, I. I feel awful about my body, but now I can understand why that is. Because now I know why that is, I can do something about that. I can start to work through some of those horrible situations I've been in. And and I, I want to come back to something else, uh, Shobna, you were saying, which is around resilience and, and understanding that you are going to fail and we are going to make mistakes. And I think if we can help people, take those events and experiences and use them, then I think we can come back, Peter, to quickening the process. You know, we, we say maturity happens over time. Well, time doesn't do a lot. It's, it's what happens to us and how we deal with those. And so part of my role and part of a coach's role and a teacher's role and a director's role and, and all of us who have some input is, is to help performers uh, process some of that stuff and learn from it and then make a change and do things differently or see things differently so that then next time they go into a difficult situation, next time they go to perform, they're better prepared, they've got a, a better range of skills and a better way of thinking about themselves in the world. So I think there's things that we can do and, and understanding those points where we trip over and we fall over, if we use them right, I think we can build that self-confidence and that self-awareness that will allow people to, to manage anxiety, manage the difficulties and perform and do what they love. I'm, I'm absolutely with you on that, David. It, but it, what is really hard is when a performer fails. Um, is, is the atmosphere in which now we are living where there's an immediate reaction to it, you know, if I were on stage, say, for example, and I, you know, I lost my words, Twitter would go wild and you'd have that immediate, you know, what's wrong, what's happening, that's terrible. You know, somebody will have an opinion about it so immediately that it's, you know, the anxiety of failing now, I think, is well, perhaps a lot worse. And it's, it's, it's different as well to, say, even... 10, 15 years ago, uh, you know, probably when you first started, because social media didn't exist. It wasn't a thing. So how have you adapted and changed to that media scrutiny, this sort of instant feedback? Um, what, what, what do you do to, to navigate all of that? I, uh, 
Well, I don't look at it uh, before a, before a performance. <laughs> you know, mm. Maltesers before a performance? No. <laughs> I don't look at it. I don't absolutely look at it. I can't. Um, whether it's positive or negative. But uh, something that really helped me in the last show that I did was that I talked. I talked with one of one of the performers, and she encouraged me to read some of my reviews. Uh, and I've never done that before. And she said, "What we'll do is we're going to pick out some words, and we're going to write them on this mirror." She sensed there was something in me that day, and she said, "Come on, let's." Let's just write this. Come on, come on. So I did. I I wrote it, and she said, "Read them out," and I did. And I just thought, okay, I can find it again. I can find it again. I can find it again. But it is hard because you're as you're a human being, you go up and you go down. There's no validation as an actor either. There's a lot more rejection than there is validation. And they say you're only as good as your last job, but then your last job doesn't necessarily count anymore. It's whether you're right for the role. And that can be, you know, as I said, as arbitrary as how you look. So it is hard not to take things personally, as David said. Mm. But you have to find some mechanisms to try and combat those feelings of taking it personally and, you know, body dysmorphia and um, all of that, you know, I've struggled with over the years. But you, and also, and also, you know, not being able to go for a role because of the colour of my skin. Or, or going for a role because of my colour of my skin. Hmm. Uh, You know, neither of which are uh, helpful. I'd like to go for a role as an actor. and simply as that, but that's not quite how it really sits in the world. There's a lot of things that you have to negotiate. So I would say preparation, discipline, you know, methods to control your anxiety, up-talking, self-talking, deciding when you're going to eat, you know, aside from all of that, the practicalities of life. Mm. Find a space to do your tax, find a space to do your... You know, because otherwise everything just escalates and goes out of control. And I have been there, you know. It's hard. I I often say I've been on tour for 42 weeks. Yeah, being on tour for 42 weeks, how do you do that? (laughs) I don't know, but I've done it. The discipline, the, the acceptance that some of your life will go out of control. I would love to ask David, so... How do you prepare an actor for being away for nearly all of their life from their home or from their base? Because I'm only I'm only coming to terms with that now, but I wish somebody had taught me how. Sure, one of the one of the I'm, I'm thinking of a client I had uh, a little while ago, and one of the the issues around that that was specific to that person was trust in the relationship, trusting the relationship that they had with their partner. Yeah, and you know when when you're away for a long time, the people back home can can be wondering what's going on, and, and this happens a lot, not not just in performing arts but in sport as well. One of the things, I mean, there's a lot of things that you've touched on on, on quite a few of them, but one of the one of the aspects of preparation uh, 
for going away is is understanding and, and building that relationship with those people at home, those people that you're not going to be seeing for a period of time and, and being able to ground yourself in that so that when you're away on tour and, and things happen and, and, and you are going to lose control of aspects of your life. But for this person, having that trust that no matter what's going on, that relationship we've got is, is rock solid. That was an, an important way for that person to to prepare for that. Um, so I, I think, yeah, again, it's about the groundwork you did. You've talked about the word discipline. It's really important. One of the things I see, particularly with the younger performers I work with, is they don't understand discipline. It, it hasn't What it means hasn't come out for them as as much and I think part of that has to do with sometimes there's a real sort of belief that you either got it or you haven't you're either a great performer or you're not a performer or you're a natural but my experience is is that performers from all all domains there's a lot of a lot of work involved a lot of training and time being spent perfecting your art whatever that might be and, and if I can just sort of expand that a little bit more peter one of the one of the mm-hmm. things i see and one of the externals that that i sort of help people with is that people around them don't may not understand that may not understand the discipline and the, and the work that's involved in order to be successful at what you want to be successful at and you know that's often because the people around us don't understand you know acting for example it's a great life isn't it because what they see is Tom Cruise or, or Shobner or, or whoever who, who apparently has made it, but you know they, they may not have. And Shobner's told some lovely stories today about some of the demands and even someone who is at the top of their game still has to deal with. So I'm sorry, Peter, I've just gone off and waffled here. If I go back to Shobner's question about preparing for tour, you know, it, a lot of it for me with the people I've worked with has been about including other people and getting that team together. And you talked about getting your allies. And I think that's a fantastic piece of advice that uh, I've seen with people I've worked with. So this is the 80% Mental Podcast, and I'm here with Dr. Shobna Golati and Dr. David Todd. And we've been talking about the psychology of stage and screen, the psychology of acting. If you've enjoyed the conversation, uh, which I certainly have, don't forget that you can subscribe at 80percentmental.com. You can follow us on Twitter at EPM Podcast. Uh, and we're on Instagram as well at 80percentmental, uh, which is all words 80percentmental. Um, a few more questions uh, for you before we before we finish up because I know that we've uh, uh, haven't got all day to, to sit and talk as much as I would like to. Um, David, I, I want to come to you first here and just think about thinking about your uh, work with with performers. Uh, what what would you say are the biggest lessons that you've learned as a psychologist working with performers outside of sport? I think that I think. You know, I, I reflected on some of these ideas, Peter. I think that the thing that kept coming back to me was um, myself and understanding myself and understanding my perform 
the person I'm working with. It's been sort of some of the big big lessons. And I'll, I'll give you an example. I, I uh, one of the things that I have done in my own life is I've I've done some of these things. So I did some amateur acting and I, I took some lessons and I have done you know open mic nights on on a drum kit and and compete in ballroom dance because as a practitioner I want to be able to understand the person I'm working with I want to understand you know when they say they get anxiety I want to know what anxiety feels like so that I can empathize with them so you know in terms of some of the the big lessons for me I think that's been one of the big ones and one of the stories I tell my students is when I first started doing some amateur acting, the culture was completely different to anything I'd ever come across before. I, I was a New Zealand male who played rugby. So there's a particular culture, hyper-masculine culture associated with that. And that was my upbringing. And then when I moved and I started doing some amateur acting, I, w I walked into an environment where everybody wanted to hug me. You know, I had these, these big blokes and they were, you know, they were expressive. They were, you know, they were beautiful men who, who were just themselves. But because of my upbringing, I didn't know how to react to that. You know, um, they were saying things, talking. They were people who were quite different. And, and I had to learn very quickly about their culture and what it was like for them. So, you know, one of the big lessons... Uh, for me, for practitioners, is get to know the domain you're going to work in. Get to know those people. Get to know their culture. Because if you don't, you're not going to fit in. And if you don't fit in, then my effectiveness is is slashed. I, I can't I can't be helpful. For me, that's probably one of the biggest lessons I've got from working in other domains. No, I, I think that's a great answer, and it's something that comes up time and time again when I ask uh, practitioners for kind of lessons and advice for, for younger practitioners. But I don't think that we really talk about enough in, in training anyway, the depths to which that's important and the, the, the lengths to which you might have to go to embed yourself within a, a culture or an environment to, to, to really, really learn about it. We don't, we don't, we don't talk a lot about that in sport. And when we train our practitioners, when we, we train sports psychologists and performance psychologists, we're, we're very quick to teach them techniques how do you goal set? How do you do imagery? How do you do that sort of thing? We need to spend more time, I think, teaching people how to get alongside each other, how to talk and communicate, how to go. You know, one of the most difficult things I see in sports psychologists when I supervise them is they, they, they go into a team or they go into a domain or they go into a company or whatever it is and they feel, they feel useless. And, and they come back to me and they say, I haven't done anything. And my reply is, have they kicked you out yet? No. <laughs> well, then you're doing something right. You know, these are high-performing people. They, they don't have time for hanger-ons. If, if you're going to be there, it's because you're going to add value and you're going to be able to help them in some way. And, and they clearly still see that there's some value with that. And, and learning to hang out and to be part of the culture, I think, is is really important to be part of the furniture um and Shobna if I can can come to you to to sort of finish off the podcast really um you, you've talked about so many things today and given us so many insights 
you know you talked about the the need for preparation you've talked about developing some of these uh, psychological skills really uh, to help you in your in your career i'm really glad as well that you've talked about specifically about being a woman and being a woman of color in the industry especially given the last few years and the conversations that people are starting to have um, but i still think people don't really understand the racism and the misogyny and the misogynoir um, that is experienced daily. So I'm I'm so glad that you that you talked about that. Um, my question really is: if you think about your career uh, to date, okay, varied career, comedy, drama, stage, screen, what have you really learned about yourself? I've learned that <clears throat> I've learned about ego actually, and I. If you come with that, you don't learn anything because it gets in the way. I think that it's important to have self-confidence and it's important to have all of those things, but not for that to be confused with ego. And I think in performing arts, we when we get validation, which is very rare, but when we get it, it can feed it can feed that side of yourself because it's that side of yourself that needs it. So if I put my ego somewhere else, I can find something new, um, you know, something that doesn't need feeding, if you like. And then that allows me to be the practitioner I, I want to be. Um, I also leaving your ego behind and, you know, making it very distinct from having self-confidence or, you know, it is a very separate thing is, 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 has been very important. I mean, I think what I've learned is never play for laughs because you're never going to get them because you're playing for laughs for yourself, not for the audience. So, or you're playing for tears, you're playing for something, you want something out of them. They will give you that, irrespective of you making them do that, because it's not you making them do that, it's your ego that's making you want to do that. So that's how it is. So in the classical art form that I come from, the in one of the treatises on dance, they talk about uh, the word is rasa and the word is bhava. So as a performer, you're encouraged to give a performance that then in the audience gives them taste, rasa, and atmosphere, which is mother. And that's all I want to be able to do, that what I do gives them something, but I don't make them feel that way. They have it from exactly what they have been enjoying, whether it's on TV, on film, you know, whether it's as they get up to make a cup of tea, you know, in an advert, and then they come back to it. You know, it's something that I can't control. My ego can't control it. It's theirs. That's what I've learned. What a, what a wonderful answer, and what a wonderful way to finish up the uh, the podcast. Um, I just really want to thank you both uh, so much for, for giving up your time for this. It's been an, a, a wonderful conversation. Um David, if uh, people want to get a hold of you uh, and reach out, what's the best way that they can do that? Uh, it might be a bit old-fashioned, but uh, email is, uh, is the best way. Uh, d.todd1 at lancaster.ac.uk is, is the best way to, best way to contact me. 
Okay, fantastic. We'll put your uh, uh, details in the episode description. So uh, if there are any budding performers out there uh, who want to speak to David, uh, then uh, his uh, details will be in the episode description. Uh, And Shobna, if people want to find out a little bit more about you and and perhaps what you're up to at the moment, what's the best way that people can, can do that? My, my DMs are always open, Instagram and Twitter. I, I do have an agent that you can go to if you need me for a more formal thing. But uh, I do respond if people do reach out to me because I think, you know, it, it's important. Obviously, I get very dodgy DMs, but I ignore them. Uh, but the other ones, I, I do, I do, I do, I do respond. And performers... You know, if they have some questions or they want to, you know, young performers, they can always reach out to my agents and they are um, Curtis Brown and that that they can find them on Google. Okay, brilliant. Well, if it's okay with you, again, we'll put links to your social media in the episode description so people can reach out to you if they if they want to. Um, so just once again, uh, to Dr. Uh, David Todd, thank you so much for coming on 80% Mental. I really enjoyed the chat. Thanks, Peter. It's been an absolute delight to meet you, talk with you, and been a delight to meet you, Shopper. And you, David. Thank you, both of you. It's been brilliant. It's been so insightful. Yeah, and uh, and and once again, Dr. Shobno Gulati, uh, thank you so much for for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you for having me. I've I've been really honoured. Thanks. Well, I hope that you enjoyed listening to that episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. A really wonderful conversation with two fantastic people. If you did enjoy listening, then why not leave a comment? You can do that at the website, 80percentmental.com, where you can also listen to all of our other episodes and subscribe to the podcast as well so that you don't miss any future episodes. You can find us on Twitter at EPM Podcast or on Instagram at 80%Mental. And don't forget to like, share, retweet, you know, all that wonderful social media stuff. And tell people about the podcast as well. Just use good old-fashioned word of mouth. Anyway, thanks for listening, and I will see you next time. Well, I won't see you, though, will I? It's a podcast. It's a podcast.